forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I had a shot of espresso today, baby. Woo! I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, and a little bit sleepy. Wait a minute. You, that's just a counteraction to you saying espresso. Espresso? Espresso? Espresso. Espresso. I don't know how to say much. Okay, wait. You don't drink coffee. Look, I, I go on and off of coffee due to my acid reflux, but today sure. I had I had PT early before we started recording, and I had time to grab what's physical therapy? Oh. Physical therapy. I thought I was like, what brand of coffee is PT early? <laughs> Sorry, I have physical therapy early. And so I had some time because I didn't ice at, at physical therapy. I iced when I got home. So I had some time and I was like, I'm going to treat myself. Watch out. And so I was did. it that coffee place that you you got me the one that comes in a jar. No, no, I just went to Starbucks this time. Okay, but that one, so I went to your house and there you had ready for me coffee mm-hmm. from I don't know where that came in like a in like a jar, not even a mason jar. It just came straight up in a jar and you drink it out of a jar. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It was cool. I got something from there too, but I hated mine and then I was sad. Oh yeah, you <laughs> you wanted it to be orange. You handed it to John and then you were like, "John, do you want this?" And then he took a sip and then was like, "No." But yeah, he it like, wasn't good. He was like, it doesn't taste like orange. So I no, I don't want it. And then yeah. you were like, oh, man, because you thought maybe you could pawn it off. But mine was great. Oh, good. Thank goodness. Because it's wasted money if nobody drinks it. Yeah, that is true. But I yeah, that's the thing is that even when we get stuff for free, me and you, even if I don't like it, I'm still like, I'm going to finish this. <laughs> well, I'm not going to not finish this. I'm going to finish it. Even that's how it is with like. I don't know what that is about me or you, but like if I'm like in a class or something I'm, and I don't like it, I'm like, no, I'll be finishing this. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't really. Well, you love to I quit. can't. I do love to quit and I'm so picky. And so the, with those combinations, I have one bite of something and I go, I could not possibly continue this. Really? Yeah. I won't even try a lot of stuff. I've got problems. Anyway. <laughs> This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. I want to give I want to give some updates. Please do. One, order Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Ooh, Two, thank you. Allison and I both have shows on a new app called Amp. Allison's is called A Nightmare to Date. Mine is called This Week in Gay. You can use our invite codes Dunn or Allison Raskin and go get it. And their live shows. Allison's is on Thursday mornings. Mine is on Wednesday mornings. Please go listen to those. Yeah, they're really fun. They're, they're live shows. So you have to listen while it's happening and you have to get it on the AMP app. And so, you know, we're, we're maybe even more revealing than normal because it won't live forever and we can't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. And uh, three... Is that I'll give you a little, I don't know, if, I'll give you a sneak peek. Is that I have a update to Bad With Money coming out on Scribd called Stimulus Wreck, which is a update to Bad With Money that takes into account, or to the book Bad With Money, 
that takes into account the last few years. <laughs> yeah. So that will be out June 8th. Yay! So enjoy that. I'm also going to read the audiobook for it. So that'll be super, super fun. And it'll be just like an extended podcast. You ever heard of an audiobook? It's like a podcast, but long. Anyway, <laughs> Melissa's shaking her head as if she doesn't direct audiobooks all day long. That's why she says it's not like a podcast, but long, because she knows the way more goes into it. Yeah, it's very true. And so that'll be very exciting. And, and there'll be like a, a scribbed 60 day free trial that I'll be able to give you guys during that. So those are three things. I feel like there's another thing. Oh, the fourth thing is my partner, Mel Blum, has an EP out called Ain't It Nice. Go get that. It's really lovely. And also, I directed the music video uh, for Candy Bards and Men, which is one of the songs. But it's, it's a country album, and it's very good. Is there anything else? So we've got my book coming out, Overthinking About You, also available. There'll be an audiobook that I read for it. Gabby's book coming out um, in, in June 8th. Our amp shows. Mal's album. Also, we're doing a book event in L.A., me and Gabby, for Overthinking About You on May 3rd. Yes, May 3rd at Chevalier's Books. You can see me and Allison in conversation about her book, Overthinking About You, which you should pre-order. I'm, I bullied you about it in previous episodes, and I will bully you again to please pre-order the book. And then come see us in person. Are you signing books at this thing? Yeah, I'm signing books at the uh, L.A. event, the New York event, the San Francisco event, and the Chicago event. So go, what do you have to lose? Allison's going to sign your goddamn book. <laughs> okay wow lots of business also why don't you leave us an apple review i'll just throw it in there for making announcements yeah leave us a five-star review let <laughs> us know let us know what you love about the show how we've changed your life oh, that's a big ass maybe just a five-star review and i like it it's it's nice <laughs> say i like it it's nice or there's no middle ground say i like it it's nice or say that we have changed your life End of list. <laughs> but we've got a really great episode for you all today. We're going to be talking to Amani Barbarin all about COVID and disability. And later we'll be discussing sharing your opinion. When should you do it? Do you always need to do it? Are there times you just shouldn't do it? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Big, a big life lesson learned for, for old gabs. <laughs> but first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous! Canada! Sugar wanted Ooh, to join in on that one. Sugar wanted to answer the question. All right. Anonymous says, Hello, Allison and Gabby. First of all, I love you both so much. I've been following you two for years, and you have both been in such an important part of my mental health and queer journey. Anyway, the TLDR of my question is how do I balance my own sexual needs with my partners when we're living together? My partner of four years and I are planning to move in together soon for the first time. Throughout our relationship, we haven't had the most consistent sex life. We live pretty far apart and don't see each other as often as we'd like. On top of that, sometimes sex is painful for me and I get very anxious about accidentally getting pregnant. For health-related issues, I'm not on birth control. All those things combined makes it hard for me to relax and enjoy myself during sex, so we don't do it very often. My partner has never pressured me into having sex or made me feel guilty about it, and he's also a very giving partner who prioritizes my pleasure, so when I am in the mood, it's great. But I know he can't control his arousal and probably feels disappointed when I don't want to do it. 
We're moving in together soon, which would remove external barriers like distance and roommates. But I'm worried that I still might be hesitant about having sex as much as he would like to. Furthermore, I love masturbation. It's quick and easy, no drama, and it gets the job done so I can go to sleep. I feel like when we live together, it will be harder to get that time to myself, and I would feel guilty about doing it instead of having sex with my partner. But most times, I just want to get off without having to worry about pain or getting pregnant or a UTI. How do I balance my sexual needs with my partners when we're living together? Sorry if anything was TMI. Would love to hear your thoughts. Sincerely, Anonymous from Canada, she slash any. Well, what are we defining as sex? Great question. (laughs) I almost, I knew this was going to be why Allison chose this. Because you're defining sex, I assume, as penetrative PNV, which I'm assuming not what you're doing when you're masturbating, right? So if you're not enjoying PNV, how, how is that not having sex in other ways? Like, in other ways, like you could, you don't have to do it the way that hurts you. You don't have to do it in a way that could could get you pregnant. There's so many other, you know, it's interesting. There's this false narrative, I think, that most couples are are doing it that way. And and like if you're not, there's something wrong. And I think if you honestly polled people, it would not be true. I think like there's so many other ways to like, as you say, get off and like have relations with each other that like, I I just don't think you need to be all or nothing about either we're doing this PNV thing that hurts me or I'm scared of getting pregnant and I can't fully relax or we're not doing anything. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, I've been interviewing um, a good amount of sex therapists for my next book and it's very normal for a couple to have different sex drives. Mm -hmm. Like that's, you know, I think that the first thing is to normalize that. So I totally get the fear, but also like that's a lot of couples that doesn't, that's not necessarily a reflection of your relationship. Mm -hmm. Everyone has different sex drives. So like, what are the chances that yours is going to perfectly align with your partner? Like maybe that happens, but most of the time it doesn't. I think a lot of these fears can be potentially alleviated by having some conversations with your partner, right? And so it's really scary and uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about their sex life with their partner directly, but it can be incredibly beneficial. So for you to even say like, hey, we're moving in together soon. I'm a little worried about these things and just see how they respond, you know, like, Maybe they're not worried about it at all. And you're maybe projecting some worry onto a situation. And I also think, you know, really speaking to what Gabby said about like the masturbation of it all could become something that is a solo activity sometimes, but it also could be a couple activity other times so that you are being intimate in a way more frequently while still not feeling like you're having to sacrifice this time that that you really like and that helps you unwind. Yeah, I also think, there's a sentence here that I, I want to latch on to, which is he can't control his arousal and probably feels disappointed. So probably I it tells me you haven't asked how he feels about it, if, if he's actually disappointed or not, or if he's just like, OK, and moves on. And also and also can't control his arousal. It's kind of a, a miss, a, a myth about about men that I think people have. I will say men, uh, aside from penis havers, because I think people like 
put testosterone in the mix as the reason. And I just think that that is a, a false narrative that has been sold to us by the media. And I would say more often than not, the that is a pressure that we put on men that they don't actually naturally have. And they, I have been told, feel embarrassed or less than for not constantly having this arousal they can't control. Um, and so I think that it, it does men a disservice and it kind of does your partner a disservice to assume that he can't control his arousal, that he's like so upset and worried about this, that like, you know, also like people get aroused and then they just and then they go, all right. And they either jerk off or they just like move on with the day. Like there's no it's not like, oh, my God, this is a, a huge thing. You know, we have to take care of this. It's just a part of life. And like, I don't know. I feel like people make a really big deal about about being like, I'm not in the mood or turning stuff down. And I personally, like, I get worked up about it. I get nervous that like, oh my God, like if if I don't, you know, if I'm horny right now, I got to take advantage of it with my partner because, you know, who knows when the next wave's coming. But it's also like you're allowed to have your own private life within a relationship. So like, maybe this is TMI, but sometimes we'll be like, hey, do you like, uh, you know, we'll be like, Mal and I, either of us will be like, hey, do you, are you, do you want to have sex right now? No. Okay. Or I'm going to go jerk off. Okay. Moving, move on. Sometimes, you know, like, and, and that's us living together. Yeah. And I, and I think that there is this fear that if you say no, that the other person will feel rejected and that it will have these long-term impact on your relationship. And that's why it's really important to kind of share this stuff with your partner, right? So that they don't take it as personally. So to be able to say, I do have a bit of a lower sex drive than you. Here are my reasons why. Here's, you know, also like, what can you do to get rid of maybe those barriers? So what can your partner do to maybe ease your anxiety around it? And maybe that is like exactly what Gabby was saying, not have it be penetrative sex because then you're mm -hmm. not dealing with the, the pregnancy worry of it all. I just think that there is so much more to these kinds of relationships and we give credit for it when we just like hyper focus on just one version of, of intimacy. Yeah, I think also pain with sex is something you should get checked out. But also there's, I mean, look, the gay community gave us poppers for a reason. If you haven't, there's lube, there's poppers, which is a, a thing that <laughs> you can sniff it and it opens up, gay men use it to open up their their muscles in their butts for anal sex, but it actually works for vaginal sex as well. So there's like all kinds of things, you know, that I think people are just like, if I don't immediately have like uh, ready to go penetrative sex, like everything's great. That feels great. Whatever. They like, you know, build it up as like, I'm not doing it right. Or something's, you know, like there's so many things that you can, you can do, you can, put a put a dildo in you know what i mean like and 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 try a different sizes of it until you feel like okay maybe this is like you know not as as doesn't hurt or whatever i don't know like there's so many things that can happen that aren't just like gosh we're really going to have problems if we can't just like immediately do p p and v you know like a quote unquote normal couple which it it is, is a lie that's a lie 
Yeah. And I, I also think that like there is going to be an adjustment period in all aspects of your life when you're moving in with a partner. Right. And privacy. So we place, yeah. We like place more value or importance on the sexual part of it. But like it's going to be an adjustment going grocery shopping. It's going mm-hmm. to be an adjustment in terms of when you go to bed, when you get up, like it is like this big shift. So to allow yourself to anticipate that and to not view that as an inherently negative thing, but just part of the process of joining lives and joining spaces. And then feeling like it's it's okay for you, like Gabby said, to, to have your protective time to maybe like make sure that you are still getting that time to yourself, but also looking for ways to maybe connect with your partner a bit more without it having to be such a big thing or for it to be this one specific way, but that you're going to be negotiating all aspects of your life right now. And sex is mm-hmm. just going to be one of those aspects. Mm-hmm. It feels like the scariest and it feels like the most important, but they, they pretty much say that like sex is like 10% of a relationship unless it's going poorly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so just like allow for that transitional period. And I think, having these kinds of potentially uncomfortable conversations with your partner about it, about your fears around it, about like what do they need from you to feel like their needs are met is only really going to help and serve you. First thing, you know, my one thing that I do to fall asleep is, is I masturbate like that's, you know, like you might not know each other's like schedules in that Mm -hmm. way. What just like, you know, your partner might be like, well, I read before bed. I don't know. Like, I think, you're merging lives and your schedules are going to have to be worked out in, um, in all aspects, as Allison said. And you just you don't know how they're going to respond to something until you actually say it to them. Right. Right. So maybe that's like that nighttime ritual totally works for them. Maybe some nights they'd like to take part in it, too. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> like just try not to make assumptions about things and instead uh, communicate about them. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So hopefully that helped. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. And also, I have an advice column now on Emotional Support Lady Substack. So if you want to submit a question there as well, you can send it to eslsubstack at gmail.com. And I can answer those questions as well in written form, if that's intriguing to you at all. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Imani Barberin. Stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, our guest is Imani Barberin, who writes from the perspective of a black woman with cerebral palsy. She specializes in blogging, science fiction and memoir. And ironically, she wrote that she did not like the idea of writing this mini bio. Welcome, (laughs) Imani. (laughs) Hello. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for asking me. I mean, I would say that that at least 5% of my time on Twitter is with your tweets because I feel like <laughs> you always have such great takes, especially about the COVID of it all. And so I would love to sort of talk to you about the difference between maybe able bodies people's perspective of COVID and disabled people's perspective of COVID. Yeah, so I feel like a lot of non-disabled people were really just 
seeing COVID as an inconvenience, um, something that they only needed to really interact with if they were leaving the house or if they needed to interact with other people. They never really thought much more outside of their certain bubble or their circle. Um, also, I'm sick of the word bubble. Like, see, anyways, <laughs> um, like we've overused that word so much. But yeah, a lot of non-disabled people were just kind of like, well, this will only affect the disabled, the elderly. And disabled people at the same time were kind of like, no, this is serious. This is real bad. Because um, we had been watching things that have, had been happening in Italy. Because if you remember, like that was the main country that was reporting outwards about it um, and the long-term effects and how people were just ravaged by this virus and disabled people were just kind of like this is a mass disabling event it's much bigger than just a very small number of people who will pass from it this will fundamentally change our way of life as we know it and people were like well what about Coachella (laughs) what (laughs) you know like why why do you think that disabled people were so aware in a way that others were not I think especially from the people who had autoimmune diseases to begin with, they were kind of like, you never know what happens with these types of things. These viruses don't just, you don't just walk away from something like that. And we we also, at the same time, had been reading what were called medical rationing guidelines. Um, basically, hospitals and health systems and departments of health and human services across the country have put together documents that would basically outline who would get care if, in the event, a hospital was at capacity. And disabled people were very down on that list because we, quote unquote, don't have any quality of life. And there are a couple of incidents of where you could hear people on taped hear medical professionals being recorded saying, I'm not going to save you. You're not, you're paralyzed. Like, you have no quality of life to begin with. So, why would we waste resources on you when somebody else who's more valuable to save oh, is right down the hall? Full mask off. It pun intended. Yeah, full mask off. Yeah, literally full mask off. And disabled people are like, this is terrifying. And I know that my organization, I work for Disability Rights Pennsylvania. This is my last day, actually. I work for Disability Rights Pennsylvania. They filed a complaint with the Department of Health and Human Services and I think sued so that they could rewrite those medical rationing guidelines so that disabled people didn't fear going to the hospital. And then that was like the most dramatic part of our medical issues. Like there were so many other things just kind of like done for disabled people. And they, you know, maybe have more evidence, like you said, of like what these diseases can do to the body in the long term, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many people with POTS who already have ME and different types of autoimmune diseases that were like, I didn't know I had a virus and I came down with this disability because my body just kind of was rewritten, basically, like everything about my body changed fundamentally because of this virus that I didn't even know I had. Then when you see when you see a train coming at you and people are saying this is a big deal, like you can get injured. um, People only really look at the people that are squarely on the tracks Mm -hmm. and say that person's going to get killed. But everybody else to the side, not going to get injured, not going to get hurt. But otherwise, we'll be fine by that. But it's everybody. It's everybody that's surrounding this issue, this oncoming train. And people just didn't listen. And do you feel like they are listening even worse now? I feel like at this point, there's like this collective exhaustion around a lot of the population to just sort of like pretend it's over. Yeah, I think there is attention fatigue. I think there is compassion fatigue. Um, But I feel like there are people that are more in tune to to learning about ableism now than there was before but still it feels kind of iffy it feels like i'm only going to care to the extent that it affects me or my understanding of the world but i'm not going to really delve into this any deeper 
but ableism affects every single aspect of public society. Um, it is designed that way. It is designed to mar- to harm marginalized people because once somebody is disabled, the rest of society will say, you know what? Like they, they die anyways. Like it's, it's okay. They literally will say that people like, well, disabled and elderly people, they're on their way to death anyway. So why does that concern me? And when you realize that like the highest rates of disability exist in the black community, the indigenous community, the trans community, the queer community, like when you look at who is actually marginalized by disability and when people just want to brush that off and say, you know, things happen to them, it paints a very stark picture as to what society actually values and how they're utilizing disability to harm and eradicate those communities. Just for our listeners, can you give like a succinct, I know this is asking a lot, a succinct definition of ableism? Like what is ableism? So ableism is society's preference for non-disabled body minds. Our society is built to cater to non-disabled people. And the reason why I say non-disabled and not able-bodied or able-minded is because there's so many different forms of disability that it's hard to like categorize the non-disabled in one specific way other than to say that that disability doesn't touch your life at all. And yeah, our entire society is designed that way. What are some examples? Our entire disability services, everything about disability is surrounds capitalism and our ability to work. Um, And so all of our assistance and all of our supports for disabled people actually legislate disabled people into poverty. Like it's legally required for you to be poor in order to qualify for things like healthcare, waiver services, things like that. There are actual income limits on these services for disabled people. Marriage equality for disabled people doesn't exist because of this, because if you combine assets and have more than $3,000 to your name, if you're on social security income, then you will lose your healthcare. A disability affects everything from the fact that we don't have a higher minimum wage to where people live, to housing, to literally everything. Disability touches everything. So it's like, it's mm-hmm. hard to know where to start, but it always starts with money. It always starts with who gets to survive and who has the resources to be able to survive. With the COVID of it all, I think like, would you agree that saying like, oh, it just affects disabled people and elderly people to me sounds like capitalism. It's the people who aren't working. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. That was definitely a, uh, a very underlying thing. It wasn't underlying at all. Like they were very loud about it to be frank. Um, they were like, well, why would we stop the economy for people who don't contribute to, contribute to it in the first place? First of all, that's just wrong. Um, so second of all, yeah, it was very much so built around, well, you know, they don't, they don't have any money. They're poor anyways. They don't have any quality of life. It's actually a mercy that they die from this virus. Yeah, it was very, it was very much so the greatest theme of COVID. So do you feel just like really abandoned by your country and your community? And, you know, because I think some people have felt like that. What's the point in even taking part in, you know, voting and being an active member of society when you're so cast off? I'm also black. So I think. So I think my expectations are fairly low to begin with. But I think what I feel now is just rage. Like there's like something bubbling inside of me where I'm like, there's I think. And I feel very, it feels very wrong to say this, but a part of me is gone Mm. because of this pandemic. A part of me watching people debate my life, debate whether or not I should survive, debate whether or not they should care about me or care about themselves or even care about me enough to care about themselves Mm. and care about other disabled people. I don't think that part of me is coming back. I just feel the rage. 
And every single time I see somebody without a mask, it reminds me that people have to be directed to be good Mm. in our society. They have to be coerced into kindness and care for other people. And when it comes to public participation and voting and all those things, like you throw up your hands because you're like, what does it change? What does it change to actually look at your politicians and actually see them working on things? Like I am so sick of politicians tweeting at people like they aren't the ones in power to do something about things Mm -hmm. and that to act like they have the exact same political power that the rest of us do when they are literally in charge. The the whole point, they basically begged us for this job interview. We gave them the job and now they want to act like, well, I'm on the outside of things. I can't really do my job. I think it's just, it's infuriating in so many different ways. And it feels like you just want to deinvest from the entire system. Yeah. I feel sort of like this idea of like, oh, okay, well, we're at a stage where now it's really only going to affect disabled people and the elderly, and that's fine. It feels like eugenics to me. It feels like society-sanctioned eugenics. Oh, I mean, society always sanctions eugenics. I mean, eugenics was what inspired the Nazis. It's not the other way around. And because of so much of our eugenics is intermixed with racism and race science and the Klan and all these different systems, people it's very much so ingrained into our society that this was always going to be the way it was going to go. Because we've never made any sort of collective effort to change the narrative around disability, value, and community in this country. It's always everybody for themselves, everybody else can F off. And, you know, like... It's our society. It's our culture. And I always say that American culture is death. We watch death every single day, all the time. We are so desensitized. We watch people die on our phones. And, you know, we tweet about it and then like, okay, then what? You know, what do we actually do to build a society in which those things are not happening? Yeah. I wanted to ask, too, about disability in terms of like intellectual disability and disability in terms... Because like I I really have obviously like a, a, a aversion to when I hear, well, but they're mentally there. You know what I mean? Versus like oh, yeah. when people say in terms of who gets to live and who has quality of life, the idea of like, oh, oh yeah, they're, they're in a wheelchair, but they're mentally there. Or like, you know, can you talk about like the weird cognitive, cognitive dissonance that people have around that? Yeah, I I won't speak for the intellectual disability community. I think that they are very good at advocating for themselves. However, I do get really irritated with this idea that disabled people have to act and perform in a certain way for people to take them seriously. Disability community, like all forms of the disability community, have extremely high rates of political power. There are entire coalitions of self-advocates that are basically shaping policy as we know it. Um, And this idea that they are not capable of doing that really just sets everybody else back because they're doing it. They're going to do it. They have to do it. They have to advocate for their communities. But this lack of inclusion is just, it's asinine. Like, I, you know, I had this video, there's this like trend on TikTok of saying that people who are baby boomers are all lead poisoned and don't know what they're doing. And that's why they're so racist and incompetent. And it's not really their fault. And I was like, okay, and like, um, like, what is that actually, like, what are you talking about? But it's this idea that intellect or, you know, intelligence is the discounting factor and why they shouldn't take office or shouldn't have power. And the society in which disabled people want to build, 
I really hate this idea that there has to be a certain caliber of person that is a leader, right? Because if, if society is actually inclusive, then I want people in authority who have dis- all types of disabilities, um, who have intellectual and, and developmental disabilities. I have a developmental disability. Like I want, I, the inclusion is, does not mean that we know what to do with, quote unquote, those people over there. It's about giving people a seat at the table so that they're also making decisions. And if your activism or your desire for inclusion stops at the point at which you think somebody lesser than you has power over than you, then you're not really fighting for inclusion in the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this whole concept of lesser than you is the core problem of like right. that we just assign different values to different humans and we're all equally valuable. Yeah. It seems to be a hard concept for people to grasp. Yeah. And you see it a lot with like trends about people making fun of certain people. It's basically performing for the productive gaze, basically the capitalistic gaze, or a lot of times the white gaze as well, saying like, oh, I'm not like them. That's why I make fun of them because I'm different. You could see me, you could laugh with me, right? They won't laugh at this because I'm more, I'm superior to them, but but I get it. I get you. Um, And you could employ me. You could have me in your company. You could have me in your spaces and I won't challenge you to change your perception of other people because I get it too, right? Mm. It's basically just performing, um, shucking and jiving. Um, so One of the good ones. Exactly, exactly. There's so much pressure to be one of the good ones though. Yeah, and I definitely grew up with that pressure of, I, w- I would specifically do things growing up that would make people second guess their stereotypes of me. I speak French fluently. I play viola. I do all these quote unquote accomplished things. Um, and as I was younger, I thought like, that's the way that I break these stereotypes. That's the way I overcome them. And at a certain point, you realize that that doesn't matter. Yeah. The people who are going to discriminate against you will. They'll find a reason. It doesn't matter. When did that shift sort of happen for you where you realized that maybe that wasn't worth putting your energy into? Oh, it started when I got my first tattoo. And this is funny because, okay, I was 19 and my, my, I got my first tattoo. I was like, I'm so excited. I'm going to put ink on my body. I've always wanted one. And tattoos are a very big deal for disabled adults specifically, because it's kind of like this weird cultural thing where you get to reclaim your body. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got this tattoo. My dad is very anti-tattoo, very much so like very religious man, very like prim and proper, very respectable. And I was at dinner for my birthday and I said, oh, mom and dad, I got this little tattoo for you. And my brother just jumps up from the table and leaves. He's like, I don't want any conflict. It just left. Uh, like completely left the room, like was in the middle of a restaurant and just left. He left um, the restaurant? He left. He went to the bathroom. He was too young to drive, but he, so like he was, wow. he was still stuck with us for the ride home. Like just got up and left. It too, brother. I know he was like, no. And so my dad because I had been hinting at it all day. I didn't really tell them what it was. And so my dad is like reeling into me. He's like, well, you're never going to get hired. You know, you know you're going to like, they're going to discriminate against you. They're going to find a reason to not hire you to places. And my mom was just like sitting back like, oh, thank God she's not pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I remember just snapping and going, saying to my dad, like, as I'm a disabled black girl, I'm a fat disabled black girl. If they're going to discriminate against me, they're going to find a reason other than a small finger tattoo you can't see when I'm waving. (laughs) And like that kind of started. I was like, there's nothing I can actually do to appeal to people who are intent on seeing me as less than. Yeah. And 
I won't say it was like a, a pinnacle moment in which I had just plateaued at this self-love and self-respect. It was like a lot of ups and downs, but it was like going back to those tattoos and going back to like reclaiming my body for myself and realizing I refuse to perform for people anymore. Mm-hmm. I refuse to rep- perform for people who will see me not as I see myself. So mm-hmm. I'm done with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also the opposite thing. Instead of less than, there's this weird disability porn of like more than where it's, you know what oh, I mean? Like overcoming. You've overcome. You're not a victim. You, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think it just boils down to people not seeing disabled people as people. And I always say that a lot of non-disabled people find disabled people inspiring when they see no other value to us be mm-hmm. existing. Mm-hmm. And I hate that too. Like it's the other end of the spectrum. I'm like, I don't want to be inspiring. I actually get really insulted when non-disabled people call me inspiring because it just feels like they're consuming me. Like I don't mind when disabled people say it because it comes from a different place. But when non-disabled people say it, I get grossed out. I'm like, get away from it. Like, <laughs> like so you're celebrating me for overcoming you. Like I'm not overcoming just anything. I'm overcoming you. It's like putting hurdles along somebody's path and then clapping along as they overcome them yeah and then being like you did it like but they didn't need to be there in the first place yeah like you put them there or like well oh my gosh I wouldn't know what to do if I was you so oh yeah that you're inspiring me because it's about me yeah yeah (laughs) I'm like I don't know you I mean I've had people (laughs) like us like I don't know you like I don't I don't know you (laughs) And you don't know me. You just saw me with crutches and like assumed I was, it happens all the time. I would go out, people would hug me, kiss me, like grab at me and try to pray over me. It was like, it's always a thing. Oh my God. My, my friend, we had a friend of, of mine, Eva Sweeney on, and um, she was talking about how people just come and pray over her. And she's like, I'm an adult. Like what? (laughs) I know. Like, I'll be doing the most wretched thing. Like, and people are like, you are so inspiring. And I'm basically just like, like sneaking Reese's Pieces out of the bag before I pay for it. Like, it's like, (laughs) oh, really? (laughs) Like a little gremlin person in the middle of a candy aisle. Like, okay. But yeah, I'm I'm not doing anything particularly special. I'm just like doing it while disabled. Do you think that that narrative stops people from asking for help? Yeah, I think I think disabled people really refuse to ask for help, especially when they see like non-disabled people celebrating themselves over it. Like they'll be like, oh, my goodness, I am such a good person for helping this disabled person. And now with camera phones everywhere, people are taping themselves all the time, helping other people like I hate it so much. Like you can't just do this nice thing for this person and not and not have to celebrate yourself for them. For what? Yeah. Like, I, I don't get it. And I think disabled people don't ask for help, too, because there's always this idea of, like, self-praise on the part of the non-disabled person. Mm-hmm. And also being watched all the time. Like, disabled people are stared at and watched and surveilled literally all the time. So it's like, I just want to get in, get out, and be, go home where I'm at peace. Mm-hmm. No, it is. It's so interesting, you know, and this is such a totally different experience, but I've been recovering from knee surgery. And like for a while, I had a, a big brace on and just the amount of people that would ask me about it where I was like, uh-huh. I don't know you. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it, it was very invasive and strange. And I can only imagine that it is like so amplified, you know, other people. What would they say to you? They just go, what happened? Yeah. 
Like, what? yeah. And um, I'm like, I what? I, I'm just walking by you. Why are you asking me that? That's so common. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. My boyfriend's like very scrappy, but very small. Um, but like, he also has cerebral palsy on the one side, but he walks without any assistance for as I walk with crutches. And I remember one time we were in the mall and this I could tell this woman was following me and I couldn't understand why. Like, I was like, is this a black thing or is this a disabled thing? Why is she following me? But she was following alongside of me. And then just like, she's like, I've been meaning to ask you, like, like we know each other anyways i didn't mean to ask you what's wrong with you what like what happened yeah i was like i just want to <laughs> i want to go to the mall i just want to be out and be but i don't yeah i was like nothing and she like she was like oh she didn't understand like why i said nothing i was like nothing's wrong with me ah. and that always throws me for a loop <laughs> that always freaks them out do you know ryan o'connell yeah. So yeah. I'm always so fascinated. But when I, I knew I've known him for years and when I first met him, he, he has cerebral palsy. Yeah. And when I first met him, his story was that he got hit by a car. So he would tell everyone yeah. he's open about it now, but he would tell everyone oh, when people would say what happened to you, he would say, oh, I was hit by a car rather than admit that he had cerebral palsy, which now he talks about openly and stuff. But that was like because people would just say what happened to you? And he was yeah. like, he felt it was, he's talked about it way better than I ever could, but he felt it was more acceptable to say he was hit by a car. Yeah, because that's when the questions stop. Right. Mm. If I say I have cerebral palsy, they'll be like, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. And like, well, have you had it since you were born? Is there a cure? Will you ever be cured? Will mm -hmm. you walk like no? Like the questions never end. But if you said, if you say somebody that there's one incident, one, one like solitary incident that is the cause of your disability, They'll stop asking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why. That makes the most, like, when you said that, I was like, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. For years. Wow. Yeah. But I've also met disabled people that change their answer every single time. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> great. I think that's perfect. I love it. I love it so much. I think that's perfect. Shark attack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> An anvil fell on me. Like, anything. <laughs> Bugs Bunny really is putting in the work these days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my exactly. God. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Just between us. And we're back. Not to be a bummer, but back to like the COVID of it all. Like, what do you think that the disabled community understands about long COVID that maybe the non-disabled community doesn't? And so what, like, what should we be preparing for? Uh, I think, I think with long COVID, everything is going to change. And I feel like that's a very broad answer, but I think everything has to change fundamentally. People who were diagnosed with COVID, whether symptomatic or asymptomatic, one third of them will experience either long COVID or long-term disability. Additionally, the people who have long COVID, who have had COVID regardless of whether they have long COVID or not, will likely be difficult to ensure um, because we actually don't know the long-term outcomes of the, of the autoimmune uh, virus. So, you know, people could drop at any time. People could become disabled at any time. You never know. Like, we don't really know what five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line looks like. So people are going to be very difficult to ensure. And for all the people who are, like, celebrating, saying, I didn't get tested for COVID, I never got a, a vaccine, you're also going to be difficult to ensure because you didn't take the necessary precautions for your health. There have been a handful of disability law-related challenges to the ADA since COVID began because 
the ADA is one of the few things keeping you insured and keeping you safe during the pandemic. It requires that organizations, schools, and companies give you reasonable accommodations, working from home, technology that helps you do your job, like literally everything. Um, Going back to the minimum wage, the minimum wage will have to increase because direct support workers are underpaid across the United States. There is now a shortage of them because several of them have either passed or they have to stay home and take care of their loved ones. They're now disabled themselves because of COVID. Yeah, everything, everything fundamentally has to change. Um, And people are just looking at it like, oh, we could get back to a normal that suits me. And it's like, no, that it won't even suit you anymore. Sorry. Mm. I mean, I do think that like showing that people can work from home, <laughs> like is kind of revolutionary. And do you think it's important to like keep that going because it, it makes things more accessible for, you know, disabled workers? But do you think that people will immediately get rid of that? <laughs> I mean, they really want to. Um, they want to stop working from home, mostly because our system is, a lot of our system is nepotism. A lot of our system uh-huh. is white men as middlemen. So they're not actually doing much at the organizations in which they are working. They're just overseeing everybody. And the people that they're overseeing have proven that they could do their jobs without them. So uh-huh. they're paying salaries for people that don't really actually do anything. But because they're in the office doing all the motions of work, then they're, they're highly paid. But yeah, they really want to get rid of uh, work from home because they want these economy and everything else to keep rolling along like it, like it quote unquote should. But disabled people have always been asking to work from home. We've mm-hmm. always been asking for accommodations. We've always been asking to have accessibility and people were like, it's never possible. Uh-huh. You know, it costs too much money. And then literally overnight, I lost my shit when I saw like, it was like a week later, they're like, oh, we have set up zoom calls to work from home we have all these new systems to just be i was i don't often choose violence but i wanted to choose violence so damn bad like it's like you are gotta be kidding me but yeah i think work from home needs to say but the question is whether these companies are really willing to be the one of the first to go completely remote and be like, we're done with buildings. Um, there's also the issue of commercial real estate i was about to say commercial real estate's f- freaking out Oh yeah, they're they're definitely freaking out because I've seen people like I am on TikTok way too much, but I've seen people <laughs> and organizations say like, oh, I'll straight up quit if they try to get me back in the office, and people mm-hmm. don't care anymore. Like people mm-hmm. just genuinely don't care what their bosses or the economy has to do with it. They're like, we have no balance in our lives anymore. Yeah, the commercial real estate of it all has been interesting to me because I have a money podcast and. There's very much like this, this, well, but, but what will happen to the buildings and you know, what will happen to the, I'm like, oh, uh, you may have to turn them into affordable housing. <laughs> oh, they lose it when you say that. They're like, what? <laughs> Why? What? Never. How dare Can you imagine? You? Right. Like how dare this building that was a monument to capitalism be turned into a place where people could actually afford to live. God forbid. Yeah. Oh my God. We have a joke on my other show about company culture which people have written in to say, oh, this is like the big reason that their their bosses have been telling them to come back. I'm like, anytime you hear the word company culture right into my show and they'll be like, everyone is like, but what about company culture? And I'm like, that things that could have been an email being meetings. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Right. And like your $5 like sheet cake for somebody's birthday once a month. Like exactly. Well, they're like, what about mentorship? And it's like, well, you know who wasn't able to have mentors? anyone other than like white men so 
Yeah. Now you can mentor anyone. Isn't that lovely? Right. Like you're not restricted to your house. You're going to like mm-hmm. Starbucks for, you know, like in the five minute break that you have. Come on. Well, who's mm-hmm. really mentoring people? And like, what was mentorship actually looking like? Because people didn't have time to actually form relationships with other people. So, right. yeah. Like moving forward, how can we be like responsible, you know, citizens, allies, just like participants in society as we navigate all of this? I think people really need to confront their own ableism and not not just I feel like whenever I talk to people about decentering ableism and like really unpacking their ableism, I always tell them to start with themselves first. And people are like, well, I want to talk about other people. And no, you need to deal with your shit first. Because I can guarantee you the way you see yourself is the way you're going to project onto other disabled people about their quote unquote laziness, about their own needs, about their need to take rest and all these things. Um, Because you are harsher to yourself, but you also hold other people to those standards. So if unless you unpack what you're dealing with and what you how you view yourself, you're not going to get very far in terms of advocacy for others. That's really empathetic and nice. Can you like kind of expand on what that would look like for somebody to sort of like examine that in themselves? Yeah. So I always tell people after we hang up or after this meeting or after this call tomorrow, I want you to make a list of every single thing that you do and how much of it is unnecessary. Like how much of it is just performing productivity so that you look busy. So you look like you're valuable so that you look like you're going through the motions of your day. But how much of that is actually necessary? I always liken it to this video that I stitched one day saying this woman just figured out she could sit down while doing dishes because nobody's looking. Well, yeah, like, you can, of course you can sit down doing dishes. Who told you you couldn't? But there's all these, like, little things that we do in order to seem like we're doing something, that we're more valuable, that we're moving around, that we're moving the peas around on our plate so it looks like all this productivity is happening all the time. And that's not sustainable. Um, you need to take rest. You need to conserve your energy. You need to budget your energy as well. So how much of what you're doing on a daily basis is unnecessary? And how do you feel about making it easier? Do you feel lazy making it easier? Do you feel gross making it easier? Do you feel like you're just compromising on who you are to make things easier? And what does that actually mean for you that you think those things about yourself? Because the same thing is getting done, right? It's getting done either way. So why are you thinking about this about yourself? And how can you make changes to make your life easier um, so that you have an ease of a day rather than making people look at you to seem more valuable? Wow, Wow. I love that so much. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, and even just like listening to that, you know, because I'm I'm still in recovery. And so like if I'm if I'm walking far, I often need to like take a break and and stop. And if Mm -hmm. I'm you know, if I'm walking with somebody else, I always apologize for that. Oh, yeah. And it's like, why am I apologizing for that? I mean, I still apologize too. I mean, it's not something that you you get over overnight. Um, it's so ingrained in us to apologize for keeping other people back or holding other people up or being too slow for other people's energy. And it's hard to undo that. Nowadays, I just stop and wait till people realize I'm no longer walking with them. And like, <laughs> like, I, just, like I just disappear for a couple of seconds and then I'll catch up. But yeah, you know, it's not always easy. And I'm 100% sure that the majority of disabled people, despite all of the advocacy work they do, despite all of the uh, activism that we do, still have the exact same thoughts that you do. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you. But yeah, I think it is so true. You have to start with how you're judging yourself. 
because yeah. if you're if you're being that mean to yourself, there's no way that you're not, even if you're not consciously doing it, ex- putting those projections on other people. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, think about the way you hear uh, hustle bros talking. Mm. I work twenty, like I work sixteen hour days. I work twenty hour days, and it's like I don't take a rest. And look at you, you're so lazy because you're resting. Like if you if you listen if you make your ableism sound like a lax bro or uh, a gym bro, I can guarantee you it'll take it'll be so much easier to like unpack all that than if you were like it was your own voice because if you sent if you centered them as like the most annoying version of your ableism you'll be like yeah that sounds like a jackass (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't make sense um and you'll be a little bit kinder to yourself i love that oh this has been so wonderful and now i would like to play a very silly game show with you Are you excited? I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) So hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then um, you tell me what you would do in that situation. Okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? (laughs) Sorry. Oh, Allison amuses herself. <laughs> She's been doing this for how long have you been writing hypotheticals? Years? Yeah, like three years. I just realized. It's <laughs> wild. Okay. <laughs> We're scrapping the bottom of the barrel, but here we go. Your partner of three years accidentally falls into the lion enclosure at your local zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not funny, but it is funny. It's really funny. <laughs> A very good looking zookeeper manages to get them out and to safety. Once your partner is safe, they start to make out with the zookeeper. So people will talk more about the make out than the fact that they fell into the enclosure in the first place because they find it to be embarrassing. What would you say with this media savvy cheater? I mean, fair. (laughs) Do I see myself marrying this person? Uh, Yeah, you've been together for three years. It's very serious. But then them kissing someone else will go viral. Exactly. It definitely will. Yeah. Them kissing somebody else will go viral. But at the same time, I I don't know why, but I would understand. It. I'd be like, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then th- they would have to say, why did they kiss the zookeeper? Then they would have to say, because they fa- it's drawing more attention to it. Yeah. But think about a news story. The news story is someone makes out with zookeeper. Why did they fall in? Yeah, what were they doing? What was, like, what was the inciting incident? Because I feel like that's important to know what, what my actions are on the back end. That's a great question. They were leaning over the enclosure so that they could get um, a TikTok of a lion drinking water. I would leave. They deserve everything that <laughs> yeah. they've gotten. They're, I can't handle this. I would leave, but I would, I would whip up controversy so I could sell a tell-all book. <gasps> Ooh! I mean, make it work for you. Go over... And and roar at them and run away and then and then publish a book called The Wronged Roar, The Wronged Woman. And then yeah. and then go and then go on Good Morning America. No, I like you have to whip up the okay, here's what you do. You whip up the yeah. controversy. You have like a split second to make a decision, okay? Because once <laughs> the cameras are still on them, right? You have to do your action right then and there. So you either oh. you have to slap you have to slap him immediately. 
while the cameras mm-hmm. are still there. And then mm-hmm. you have to cuss out the zookeeper. Make it as much of, like, froth it up. Froth Bad it up, girls froth club. It up. Bad exactly. girls club. Froth it up. <laughs> and then be like, I can't believe you cheated on me after all I've done. I'm pregnant with your baby. And then, <gasps> then you have to be like, okay, take a step back. I'm just going to work on me for a little bit. Go completely silent. All the while, you're writing the book. You're writing the book. You're writing the book. Go completely silent. <laughs> <laughs> Six months later, pop up with the book. <laughs> Leader of the pack. My story of struggle after my <laughs> boyfriend made out with the lion tamer or whatever. Or you could say not so picture perfect. Like, or yes. the, the roar that went unheard. Oh yes. <laughs> and then you go on the Kelly Clarkson show. You promote it. <laughs> See, this is the type of stuff I love because this is what I actually do for a living. Miscommunication. <laughs> <Like laughs> I was going to say, this is one of the best strategic answers to one of the (laughs) hypotheticals of all time. (laughs) Wow, you definitely win. 57 points. There's normally not points, but you deserve points on that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? You live in California. Your child, four, really wants to go to Disney World for their fifth birthday. But the trip to Florida is too expensive. Mm-hmm. Thinking they won't know the difference between Disney World and Disneyland, you put a blindfold <laughs> on them and put them in the car for the four-hour car trip to Disneyland, but tell them they're going to Disney World. They have a great time. But when they tell their friends they drove to Disney World over the weekend, one of their friends who has actually been to Disney World calls them a liar since you have to fly to Disney World. This causes lots of fighting and tears before you come clean. Are you a terrible parent? Where do they live, My, though? Yeah. They live four hours north of Disneyland in California. Okay. Well, Disney World, I know I say this as a, a Disney adult, uh, a gay Disney adult, so there's a lot to unpack there. But <laughs> Disney World is kind of better so mm-hmm. ah, man i don't know i think you should why didn't you just why don't you just say we're taking you to disneyland instead because you know how kids are they get fixated on something and they want disney world if they're fixated why don't they know what it looks like because they're four yeah they're four wait they're four and having full arguments yeah about like flying versus driving but also you still can drive to disney world it would take longer than a weekend. I mean, here's the thing, though. I drove from Pennsylvania to, to Florida when I was, like, nine years old because our plane wasn't working, so we got a rental car. So we drove the full, like, 19 hours. So it is possible. It is still possible. That's you could just, and where are you, you driving? You just blindfold them, oh, and then drive four hours. So they don't know. They have any concept of time because they're a child. See, well, also, too, like, melatonin gummies these days, like, they are, they're overused in children, so... Oh, my God. You're trying to drug your child? I mean, I'm just saying, like, I'm not trying to drug my child. I'm just saying, like, it is an option. Uh, but, <laughs> I was but, talking to my partner about, and I was like, well, you know, like, you give you give a baby a little bit of whiskey so they quiet down. My partner was like, what was your childhood like? <laughs> like, but the CBD gummies for children, you know. Oh, my God. Different things. I'm just saying. Depends. It depends. Yeah, you can give it to them. I... <laughs> Uh, wow, four-year-olds arguing about this is really is really tripping me up. You're not a bad parent though, because you you do with, with with what was within your means at the time. 
Mm-hmm. And so do you wanted them to have the experience that they had. So, yeah. Yeah. You're not a bad parent. You're not a bad parent. I would tell the kid to double down. <laughs> double down on the lie. Really, yes. but like a lie. The the difference between the truth and the lie is confidence, to be honest. So, like, tell the kid to double down. Like, <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah, we actually went to Disney World. So, how dare you discount my experience? Yes. You don't know. Be like, yeah, we drove there because we have a super fast car that's not available to the general population. Yes. Yet. <laughs> double down. Double but here's down. The thing. More confidence always works. More details rarely ever works because you always have to follow oh. them up with more details. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Keep it keep it vague and confident. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have to justify my trip to you. Because <laughs> like I went through the experience that I could at the time that I had, okay? I mean, later <laughs> on they could say that their parents lied to them, but put it all on the parents. Like mm. there are options, there's availabilities. Hello. I like <laughs> the idea that <laughs> More confidence is is right, but more details are wrong. But I'm right, though. <laughs> Words to live by. Almost, <laughs> almost how I've lived my entire life. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Can you tell that my whole family is at Disney World right now celebrating my niece's fifth birthday and I feel so left out? No. Oh, my God. You can't go because of your knee? Yeah, I need my. I had a final this week. It was just yeah, like. Uh, no. But they all sent me a photo today of them all in like Disney shirts, like for her birthday. Is, I would rather not know. Don't send me a photo. Right, like uh. don't involve me in your like guilt plan. Hello, my mom met Rihanna without me. Like my mom, <laughs> <laughs> like she, like, I was like yeah, she she flew. So my family's from Barbados. And she went to Barbados and got backstage passes to a Rihanna concert. Met Rihanna without me. Didn't tell me that I was able, like, I was allowed to go with her because I had school at the time. And she's like, yeah, I can meet Rihanna. She's lovely. She's so cool. I was like, I will riot right now. Like, I'm so pissed. Wow. Wow. It's impossible to get over that. Yeah, that's yeah. that's an are you a terrible parent? And that's correct. <laughs> I'm still mad. I'm still salty about it. I would be as well. <laughs> okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You have been married to your partner for 30 years. On your mm. first date, they told you that they are super allergic to bell peppers. So for decades, you made sure that they never consumed bell peppers and even stopped eating them so you wouldn't accidentally transmit it to them. One night, you are at a party and your partner is digging into a spread that they really like and encourage you to taste it. When you do, you immediately taste bell pepper and freak out, thinking your partner is about to have an allergic reaction. You start screaming for an EpiPen when your partner clarifies that they aren't actually allergic they just really hate the taste, so they tell people they are allergic. Would you forgive this liar? <laughs> you see, from a disability perspective, yes. But from an interpersonal perspective, I'd be pissed. Like, <laughs> yeah, why do I have to be part of the lie? Why am I lied to? Everyone else, I get it. But also, you're yelling for an EpiPen. You obviously think that this allergy is incredibly serious. So why doesn't my uh, partner carry an EpiPen? Why have I never noticed my partner not carrying an EpiPen? Honestly, I'm not I'm not paying attention to them or giving them the uh, uh, attention and care that they desire. That's on me. 
So is this a marriage of 30 years that is a loving marriage of 30 years or is this like a very distracted marriage of 30 years? Because those are two very separate things. Loving. Loving. Mm. But have I like too, been too busy with work to notice them lately and they just like feel <laughs> like not seen? No, they just like they said a lie on their first date with you and then they like forgot that they never had clarified that it, it wasn't actually an allergy. And so they like have just been going about their life because that's like just a lie they tell everybody. Let me ask you a question. If you, if you, sorry, if, if you don't like a food, uh huh, then that means your taste buds don't like it. So isn't that in a way an aversion which may fall under allergy? See, that's what I was saying from a disability perspective. Like it could be a texture thing too. Like it could yeah. be a sensory issue. I uh, yeah, I I think I think I'd stay. Yeah, I think I'd say I'd be pissed, but I'd say and I put bell peppers in everything. Yeah, I was gonna say, would you start eating bell peppers again? Yeah, I would. I would put it in everything and be like, oh, you don't want it? Oh, then maybe you should order in. Use your own. Use your checking account, not mine. Like, like like, actually, so that did actually happen to my family. We weren't allergic to it, but we complained about my mother's cooking, and then she never cooked again. And like, yeah, so. We had to learn how to cook ever, it, like, ever. Like, she, like she just like we could. Okay, here's the thing. We, my mom, again, I'm from the West Indies. My grandparents had shipped over flying fish to our house, and it was like wow. it was frozen. Like there was so much of it, we had eaten it for like a year straight without stopping. So we, like, one day we we're just like, I'm done. I can't eat this anymore. My mom was like, Oh, okay. And, like, and made us like this tofu meal that she had had in the fridge for three weeks and Your then put it on our petty. plate she's very petty she's very petty she fed it to us it tasted like fridge and then from then on she just never cooked again and was like it's up to you all figure it out and i was like what <laughs> what is your mom's zodiac sign i'm terrible at zodiacs but her birthday is um april 29th so this okay, in a couple so weeks she's She's, I think, in Aries, which are very, hold please. Oh, she's a Taurus. All right. Yeah, she's Well, that's not very, not very petty in my eyes, but. <laughs> I'm the Aries. She's, she's the Taurus. Oh, yeah. interesting. Very yeah, so interesting. we're very, you know, we're very much so like take no shit kind of people. Yeah, stubborn. So I should have seen that coming. Um, <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I would stay. I would yeah. stay too. How is how is flying fish? Is it good? It's really good. It's bony though. Like it has like a lot of little tiny bones. Yeah. And it's like it was we were always like choking on them. Okay. <laughs> a year of that, a year of that is enough. <laughs> yeah, like a year. And we it, we had, and it was cooked the exact same way every time. And I was like, I'm over this. I can't eat this anymore. Like <laughs> that was it's a like a social experiment to see how long it takes for you to crack. Right. And like my, my mother, especially, is very much of the mind of like, we eat it till it's done. Like, we're not going to waste any food. Mm-hmm. Like, expiration dates mean nothing to this woman. Um, like, <laughs> there's, we have seasoning in like random ass like water bottles that were shipped all the way from Barbados. They're still in the same. It's a whole thing. Wow. But yeah, I was like, I can't eat this anymore. Like, we've had it every single day. I love fish. I love, I love my island. I cannot eat this. Um, and she just never cooked again. <laughs> I love that. 
I feel blown away by that in a great way. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of fortitude to do that for so long, too. Like that's the that's the part that's most impressive. Just like, not do it again. Like never again. It's amazing. Wow. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. Where can people find you and more about you? So I'm on crutchesandspice.com. You could book me for speaking engagements or you could contact my agent, Sean, at collectivespeakers.com. I'm at crutches underscore and underscore spice on TikTok and Instagram. And I'm at Imani underscore Barbara on Twitter. So thank you all for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about sharing your opinion and why you might not always need to do that. To just between us, it's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby, baby, baby. God. That was a spooky one, Melissa. <laughs> it's spooky every time. <laughs> wow, I gotta keep guessing. Thank you for sharing your opinion on our topic. Sharing your opinion. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> so honestly, what made me pick this topic was what happened at the Oscars. And everyone having hot takes on it. And I just was like, I don't have a take. I don't have an opinion on this. I I don't feel like I'm in the position to even be able to have an opinion on this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so it just like kind of sparked like, like, is that okay? And, and should we normalize that more? That like sometimes you're not the person to have an opinion on something. Absolutely. Well, in the in the olden days, if you had an opinion, you told your friends or you had like a column in the newspaper or you, you got on a soapbox and told some people in your town. But it wasn't like, and now I will share my opinion worldwide, no matter who I am, which in some ways is good and in some ways is bad because you feel pressure to have an opinion because everyone around you is publicly having an opinion and you feel pressure to comment on what's going on in the zeitgeist to, I guess, seem relevant or to gain attention or to feel like you're part of the conversation. But sometimes the conversation is not for you. Like, I think specifically with the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing, like perhaps white people sit this one out. Agree. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I think I think sometimes with political stuff, too, like, you know, I see a lot of people jumping on sort of political bandwagons without really knowing that much about the actual situation. Like, if you didn't know about Russia and Ukraine a week ago, then maybe stay out of it. Like, I don't know. I just feel like there's certain things where if it's the thing of the day, I would say take 24 to 48 hours before you type anything about it and think hard. Don't try to be the first person, you know, like in my life, I have shared my opinion all the time. And now I have I know I'm on talking about this on a show in which we share our opinions but now I'm like who needs it nobody nobody needs to hear what I think if they want to hear what I think read it in a script (laughs) I don't need you to know what I think in regards to the Oscar thing it's a much more nuanced conversation that white people should not be having Mm -hmm. and you know and then with Gabby saying you know the stuff about Russia and Ukraine a lot of these things are not 
things that opinions need to be had on. It mm-hmm. it comes from facts. Same. And I feel like whenever you and it's kind of not what an opinion is, but it is, is that you need to come from a place where uh, where you have knowledge in a subject and don't just go like popping off from the mouth just because you can. Mm-hmm. There are most things are very nuanced. And just because you have thoughts on it doesn't mean that they're the correct thoughts. Or that they're even needed, not even correct, but like it's like nobody was clamoring for your opinion. And if they are, you don't have to give it (laughs) like I've been looking back on a lot of interviews with people where they're just very succinct. Like I think like I was talking to someone in my life who's who's dealing with perhaps coming out and I sent them this interview with David Bowie, which people have opinions on David Bowie. Fine. But. I sent them this interview with with David Bowie, where an interviewer is like, you've said that you're uh, bisexual. What do you mean by that? And David Bowie goes, I'm bisexual. And he's like, but you've never quite answered the question. And David Bowie's just like, I am bisexual. And he's like, but what does that like? What does that? And David Bowie just goes that I am bisexual. I've answered the question. And to me, I feel like that sometimes like I said what I said is Mm -hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. And and you don't have to go into a whole extrapolation and you don't have to give people more of your inner self than um, you feel you you need to. I think there's sometimes there's there's if you if people think you don't know about a subject, sometimes you people are forced to overshare in order to seem knowledgeable about a thing when it might have just been better to not say anything. <laughs> Well, I think it's like a, a shift for me to recognize that that sometimes I genuinely just don't have an opinion on something. Exactly. You know, like I don't care. I, I or like I just don't know the answer. I don't know mm-hmm. what the right take is because I don't I don't have the information or I'm not a part of the community that mm-hmm. are the people whose opinions on this thing are valid. And mm-hmm. to like be able to say that like one, I either don't have an opinion or two. I I should even if I have a private one, it is not my place to share it in a public forum because I'm not part yeah. of the community that this issue revolves around. There's also differences between what we would talk about within our own community and what we would say publicly. Mm-hmm. Agree. <laughs> so yeah, opinions, it's kind of funny because I've had to learn that the way that I speak to other trans people is not how some the way I've had cis people, it's like not the way that they I should speak to them. And that's a learning curve. So some stuff is like you want to keep I feel like there's like pressure to keep stuff in the communities to not look messy, you know? Yeah. Not to promote my own podcast, but on my podcast, but am I wrong? We have this section at the end where um, we picks like a wrong of the week. And I talked about the Oscar situation and I started it off by saying and usually with our wrong of the weeks we have like every people vote on it at the end of the week and and like see where the opinion lies and I I stated at the beginning I am going about this in a different way because I don't think white people should be having an opinion on this and our majority white audience should not be voting on this and then someone sent me a message and said, because we had a choice, is like, I'm white, so I'm staying out of this. And so they were like, I picked this, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on what the situation was. And I was like, I gave my thoughts. It's that you didn't hear it in the way that you wanted to hear it. 
And so mm. some people, ha- they want opinions in the way that they want to receive it, but that's, you're not part of the community. So this isn't something that I'm not going to talk about it in the way that you want it talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think I've just learned to stay out of stuff unless it's like directly with my friends. Exactly. How do we explain to people that there are certain things they shouldn't have opinions about? You can have an opinion privately, but you don't get to, you don't, you shouldn't talk about it. And also the communities are not a monolith. Different black people had different opinions on that. Mm -hmm. You know, different, different trans people have different opinions on things. Different queer people have different opinions on things. Even within, you know, I'm coming up against people who are very binary within the community. And so... And and that's very different than my group of friends who tend to be a little bit more gender fluid. So, you know, even within the group, it's like it's like funny. It's like this this we all come together for each other within the group. And like outwardly, we all try to like have the right opinions. But then like the infighting amongst ourselves is like we don't need anyone else to see that. Agree. And I think you just tell them like this isn't for you. This isn't. Yeah, something that I want to have this conversation with. I ha- I think about that a lot. Like sometimes there's just things I want to keep within my own community that I don't want to have with the broad world or whoever's listening to me. It's not for you to to consume, and you know, you stay in your business, and I'll stay in my business. What about people who say to you like, "Well, Melissa, as a black woman, how did you feel I about hate it?" That <laughs> I'm like. I have one friend that would all and she's a person of color, too. And she would always say that to me. And I'm like, I had to tell her at one point, I'm like, anything that I have as an opinion, it's always going to be through the lens of a black woman because Mm -hmm. that's who I am. So Mm -hmm. like that doesn't need to be prefaced. And any opinion that I give will be from my perspective. Right. And just like allowing yourself the freedom to not have an opinion, I think is really liberating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that's why, you know, I when you guys ask me all the time, like to join, I'm like, I don't have an opinion on that. So I'm not going to join. Mm-hmm. I used to just run rampant with my opinions. <laughs> just I like run at the mouth. And then like two seconds later, as I've said before, like I'll run, I'll run at the mouth. And then two seconds later, be like, I don't even believe that. Like, sometimes I listen back to an episode from a week ago and I was like, why did I say that? I don't even think that like it's. <laughs> So, I mean, I think I've just learned to be a little bit more careful, even though I know probably people listening to this are like, this is you being careful. I get it. (laughs) Is it for that? Is it truthful to you in the moment or are you just talking to talk? It's truthful to me in the moment. But I also hear myself back. And I think the way that I speak, my cadence and my tone is is aggressive. So it's such that when I say something, I think in the average person said it, they, people would go, oh, yeah, this has nuance but because of the way that I speak or something. It sounds like I'm fighting. So people just take what I'm saying and they're like, this is an argument, but I'm really just talking. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I get with me, like people think that I may not be interested in it because I have a monotone voice. And that's simply not true. That's just the way that my words come out. Right. So. Like, I'll listen back and I'll be like, God, Gabby, why are you going so hard at this? But I'm not really. I just have like the voice of someone who is. Yeah. I put a lot of effort into how I talk 
and how I sound and it's exhausting. <laughs> like I, I watch our videos of, uh, you know, of the international question that we put on YouTube and you come across extremely measured. You talk in a very comforting, nice way. And then, and I don't notice it during, but like, you'll talk this way. And then it's just like, it's just like me on the other side being like, wow, like, and I don't notice that that's what's going on, but you're, you know, being, you know, very measured. And, and is that you feel like not true to yourself? I mean, I think I put a lot of thought into how I talk about stuff because I think, you know, in this context, I want there to, there is so much nuance and there is so much context that's important. And so, you know, but like if I, again, like, I think it's okay. Like, I think it's okay for me to have a difference in how I speak when I'm public facing versus how I speak privately. I got to learn that. I have like a big difference. And, and it was interesting. Yesterday I was interviewing someone for my book and she asked me if we could put the interview on TikTok live while it was happening. And I was like, no, because I didn't <laughs> I didn't want to have to go into my public facing mm-hmm. deliveries of things. And I don't think that that's me like being fake or me not being my true self. But I just think that like we have different parts of ourselves depending on the situation. Yeah. And so like when we do interviews and when we do things like it, it does take more energy from me and is different than if I was just having a casual conversation with somebody. But even in conversations with people, like I put a, and maybe this is like the therapist training <laughs> that I've had or whatever. I was like, going to ask if this is something you learn like in school. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think active listening is an active activity. And so I put like a lot of thought and, and effort into being an active listener and in the way that I say things and in the way that I you know, and I think there's very few people in my life where I don't feel like I need to do that or where I don't feel like I need to do that all of the time. For important conversations, I definitely do that for even the people mm-hmm. I'm closest with because I think that that it helps create a safe space and it helps, I think, mm-hmm. people feel more comfortable. But, you know, there are times where I'm just ranting and raving and not and not caring as much, but that's different <laughs> than when I'm in a public-facing role or when I'm having a really important conversation. Yeah, I have to figure it out because privately I can be a bit of an edgelord and I have to and like, again, everyone listening to this, haha, yes, publicly as well. But like, yeah, I think I think I I have to sometimes consider my audience, which I don't always do. (laughs) Oops. And I also think maybe a large part of it is having spent the last two years on Zoom, right? So I now know what my face looks like when I'm listening to something. And I'm like hyper aware of like the Mm -hmm. reactions that I'm giving to people. And I want those reactions to. And I don't think this is bad. Like I want people to feel comfortable when they're talking to me. And sometimes that that requires more effort on my part than there would be if I didn't care if somebody was comfortable talking to me. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, it does. I'm happy to give that effort. It just requires effort. What do we rate this episode? I will rate it 17 out of 12. Never cooking again. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm going to rate it 24 out of 20 um, meeting Rihanna without your daughter. Mm -hmm. Mine's going to be 70 out of 43 making out to save face. Yeah. Wow. Getting dumped. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you so much to Imani Barbarin for being our guest. 
Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond, Big D Monts. Edited by Coco <laughs> Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brenda Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at SheIsNotMelissa, at Allison Raskin, and at Gabby Road on Instagram, where you can find everything else, Allison's book, our Patreons, all of it. Okay, love you. Bye! Bye! Forever! Dog!